0: And welcome to Oscar Podcast, episode 36. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com and me, Sasha Stone, also from Awards Daily. Today we're continuing our an- analysis of the Oscar years and, and now we're on 19, the film year 1983 and they held their Oscars in 1984. And it was the year that uh, James L. Brooks had his big win with Terms of Endearment, which won... Um, picture, director, screenplay, actress, and supporting actor, and was nominated for a whole bunch of others. As it turns out, it was a pretty weak year overall, I would say, 19, um, 1983, especially compared with the year before. Um, just just my sort of you know general observations about it. And the Oscar year, I think, was weak. Um, the Best Picture lineup, I think, was weak comparatively to what we've been seeing through the 70s and on through the 80s. This is like the really first, you know, lukewarm year where there were other movies that probably should have been in there, like Silkwood and The Year of Living Dangerously. Those two for sure. And Yentl, let's face it. The big elephant in the room was Yentl, not getting any kind of Academy recognition at all. And it was really um, a cheat on Barbara Streisand, a lot of people think, so...
1: One indication of the of the uh, fact that it was a uh, a year when the academy was sort of groping around is that there was a disconnect between the director and, and best picture nominations, right. uh, with two different directors that were left out uh, uh, who had uh, of the best picture race. And so it means that that people were sort of groping around, grasping for for favorites, and there was nothing that was it was so outstanding that it that it blew everything else away. Right. Looking back on it, there are some movies that that are pretty important, but they weren't recognized at the time.
0: Right. Like.
1: Yeah. For instance, Scarface. I mean, Scarface is just risen and risen more and more in esteem. Not that Scarface was any – that I believe it's a best picture contender or anything like that. But it was totally overlooked and almost, I think, probably mocked and laughed at because it's – I guess it was so over the top or something, right? Mm. I don't – but but over the years, you know, it's really risen in esteem. And the movies like uh, King of Comedy, which was totally overlooked by the Oscars and is a classic now, you know, sort of a cult classic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It- you know, also, weirdly, the DGA predict better, you know, the DGA was was a mismatch also with with um, director because the DGA. Well, James L. Brooks still won. Um, Ingmar Bergman was also nominated for Fannie and Alexander and Bruce Beresford for Tender Mercies. They were nominated for both. But Lawrence Kasdan did not get an, uh, an Oscar nomination for directing The Big Chill, despite what kind of. Um, culturally impactful movie that was Mike Nichols got in for um, Silkwood instead and Peter Yates got in for the dresser um, replacing Philip Kaufman for the right stuff so there was definitely a weird kind of disconnect happening with with maybe maybe the director's kind of like last year the director's branch sort of was on a different wavelength than the than the cat um, than the DGA.
2: It, it seems symptomatic of a year where there is no clear outstanding favorite, and people are kind of throwing darts at the wall and mixing up their votes. And different people are falling off in different places. To say in that context, I think the terms of endearment is a terrific choice. It's it's held up well. It's the kind of movie that's going to get easily dismissed by a certain certain snobby category of, of critics and even probably voters because it appeals to people's emotions and deals with interpersonal human relationships. But um, in other words, it, it smells of like being a chick flick. Um, but it's, it's great. It's the kind of movie mm-hmm. that could easily have gotten carried away with sentimentality and lots of other things that it never does. It um, gives moments to all of its characters to be fantastic and it's got a great cast and they all are wonderful in it. And it's... Um, you know it's funny and it's moving and i don't know what else you can really want from from a best picture
0: yeah and the thing is is it was also a year where it was kind of like last year in that lincoln was really the film that was supposed to win and last year or in this year it was really the right stuff was was set up to be the movie that was going to win because it had so much pre-release hype unfortunately unlike lincoln which made a shitload at the box office the right stuff faltered and it um, it didn't make any money, even after the nominations came out, it still it, it still made less than it cost to make back then. And nobody mm-hmm. went to see it and nobody won it was kind of like they felt obligated to go see this quote unquote important movie, but it wasn't nobody, you know, was excited about it or emotional about it, and then contrast that with terms of endearment, which um, was so emotionally engaging to everyone that it's easier to it's easier to, to pick. A movie like that over a a kind of a dry um, interesting but quote unquote important movie like The Right Stuff the other movie that was really supposed to win was The Big Chill which was another um, uh, you know major iconic film for that year and that time it was the yuppies you know it was
2: the boomers the,
0: the boomers the new generation it was really a pivotal moment I thought for that particular generation I'm still really shocked that it didn't um that it didn't win best picture even though obviously terms of endearment is far greater and i wonder if it's because lawrence kazan didn't get a best picture nomination or because by the time the oscars rolled around people were sort of over it or because you know it is kind of a snotty movie like (laughs) i -hmm. mean when you watch it now while it did capture oh
1: yeah um, now i mean now it is it's much more repulsive to me than it was a um when I first saw it, the more yeah. the, the more distance I get from that movie, the more that I dislike it because it, it just epitomizes the yuppie yes. um, mentality. And and, and you don't know, I don't care about any of those characters. It's a it's the ultimate white people's problems movie. Yeah, it's it, a bunch of self self obsessed uh, wealthy people who are just have their heads up their own asses.
0: And they do it without satire. Like if that movie had mm. been done to lampoon that generation, that would have been great.
2: Yeah. If it had come along a couple years later, it probably would have won. I'm feeling like maybe the boomer generation as a thing didn't quite have the pull that it had then. Obviously, it, it appealed to that generation, but it wasn't... That was sort of the movie that made that... Generation a thing in, in the public consciousness was it not? Or I see what a, you mean. Yeah, yuppie
1: was yuppie probably wasn't even a, a thing yet. But but looking back on it, it, it represents the yuppiedom. But but I don't really think that people are really like the, it's like uh, hipsters didn't didn't exist right. either. You know, it's just a, sort of a thing that that was just becoming um, um, a type that people right. didn't really recognize with or didn't identify with.
0: Well, I think it's, they discovered later that they identify with it because it was so many people's story. Like, I, I just mm-hmm. I remember living through that time. And first of all, those songs were everywhere. That soundtrack for all those songs, you know, I heard it through the grape, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Played on the radio. Played
2: over and over and over again. And it wasn't just one soundtrack album. They came out with a sequel to the soundtrack album yeah. with more songs in it. Mm-hmm. That's how huge that thing was. It was. It was one of those... You know it happens every couple of years with a movie where the sound not not so much anymore but it used to where the soundtrack becomes a thing unto itself you yeah. know I mean, it's mm. sort of like um and- it's easy to forget how huge that was.
1: It was. Huge. Am I mistaken though in, in thinking that the, the soundtrack, the music, was not of the 1980s? It was an era. It was a previous. It was a. It was several years before music yeah, from ten was years their, earlier, right? It, it was, was the music they had enjoyed when they yeah. were in college.
0: Their teenage music, and it was Motown, mm. and and basically that movie for a very long time ruined that music
2: for. Yeah, a lot totally. Of it's still. Yeah. I still can barely listen to some of it because it just some of the Rolling Stone songs come come away okay because because they just do, but, you know, I heard it through the grapevine. I don't think I'd ever need to hear that song. As it's, it's great of a song as it is, it's its been still tainted to me.
0: I know, but you and know what's weird about The Big Chill is that, and I say this again as a, as older than both of you, five years older than Craig and I'm old enough to be Ryan's grandmother almost.
2: (laughs) Oh, stop it. I'm just
0: saying, I'm a year younger than Shirley MacLaine was when she played Aurora Greenway on on Terms of Endearment, which freaks me out because I just realized that today. Because I always thought she was so old. But that that life as depicted in The Big Chill was not only kind of the life that everybody, all the adults I knew who were older than me at that time, because that was my senior year of high school that year, um, they were striving to live that life. I mean, that was really mm-hmm. it. That was the American dream, you know, with the dumb Nike shoes and the you know and the, the many turkeys and pies and for Thanksgiving and you know um, talking about their marriages and having affairs and whatever. I mean that was it. That was really like that kind of white person's upper middle class life at that time. But um, the the thing about movies, the way they changed starting in the 80s, is that they only depict houses and people of that class. And they stop focusing on... I don't know if it was Reagan or the yuppies or what, but if you go back to that era and on through the 90s, and even now... Movies about regular people are always in these giant lofts or, you know, like Ghost, for instance, in that giant loft in New York. Um, right. right.
1: Even unemployed people have yeah. a fantastic apartments. Right. On television, too. The Friends on Friends. That was a fabulous apartment on Friends. And and how, how do they afford that kind of a place in New York City? It's right, impossible, right. right?
0: So that's the thing about that struck me about The Big Chill. I was thinking about that was really the year I thought that it kind of was introduced and, and it never really – got back Mm -hmm. to normal. It's still like that, really. Like I
1: said, back then, I think that people aspired to that because really when you look at those people and you look at the professions that they had, the characters, the professions of the characters, they were lawyers and doctors and they were uh, businessmen. There was the one drug deal and everything, but they were the 1%. They were the 1% that people (laughs) resent now. But back then, that was the lifestyle, like you said, that people aspired to. It had had yet to become the thing that was tainted and it it was sort of scorned. I'm sure that a lot of people still would like to have – who wouldn't like to have that kind of money? But but to have that kind of attitude with that kind of money is the thing that is looked down upon now. Right. In the Norma Ray podcast, I talked about how at that, up to that point that the movies were really good about
2: presenting sort of a scruffy, lower-class right. arcana that was very common. And then it sort of, what, like Sasha's saying, it dried up here. And I was thinking... Um, Silkwood from the same year totally captures that same thing. But um, even even E.T. from the year before, which is sort of the suburban family, it's still very rough around the edges and very very seventies and very chaotic. If you look at that family's interaction sitting around the dinner table, and you know they're cussing at each other, and the place is a mess, and the mom is kind of haggard, and and the house is it's a decent house, but it's got that seventies sort of sort of rec room rundown kind of vibe to it. And it's a uh, shambles and she's a single mom, too. Yeah, and exactly. Know. And so yeah. it's it's emotional and it's also material. But in in the movies post Big Chill focused on that generation that is co- completely scrubbed free not just not just the look of it and the materialism of it but i think even the emotions of it it's it's less ragged it's much cleaner and and more antiseptic almost it
0: starts depicting life as idealized and and perfect like it starts depicting life as through the lens of oprah i'm not blaming oprah i've, I've watched her my whole you know adult life I, I admire the shit out of her i think she's incredible but i'm just saying that one of the effects of the Oprah generation was this: everything has to be depicted right. You know, it has to be mm-hmm. the right mom, the good mom, or the you know, and ev- and those movies of the '70s, those were all movies that they would have you know had fits about. You know, oh, there's no there's no um, dad in the home in ET. You know, um, they're cursing. You know, I just watched the little girl who lives down the lane. Jody Jody Foster's uh, supposed to be 13 in that movie. She totally gets naked and crawls into bed with some guy, full on naked. Well, not, you know, not bottom, but, you know, her, her mm-hmm. tits or whatever. You can see them. Mm-hmm. And people didn't think anything of that because that was the time that they were living through. Plus, it was okay, more okay to depict imperfect characters without having to punish them. Without mm-hmm. having and to
1: think about Taxi better. Driver and The Deer Hunter. Those were blue-collar, working-class people. And those movies were actually were able to be nominated for Best Picture about working-class people. And that, like you said, that, that came to a screeching halt in the 80s. It became, I think, more about the, 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 the lifestyle of the people who were making the movies. The writers and the yeah. directors do live like that. And so they started making movies that reflected their own reality and reflected the reality of the Academy voters probably too. They're just really well-off and comfortable. Everything is, is neat and tidy taken care of and uh your problems are um are sort of your you have sort of self-involved problems instead of instead of larger you know social issues that you're dealing with
0: right and if it's if it's ever a poorhouse, it's a sad pathetic poorhouse. like you know they're drug addicts or she's a hooker or you know mm-hmm. there's a com- yeah. comment on it that that you know passes judgment on that lifestyle
1: like like Craig said, Silkwood really does capture that. Really does capture the absolutely authentic feeling of the people who have to get up and work a really hard job every day and come home, and there's hardly any food in the, in the refrigerator and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's shabby. It's a shabby kind of lifestyle. But it really it really captured it really well. But people, I guess, were, didn't want to, or had gotten tired of seeing that in the 70s, maybe because Silkwood was not successful at the box office either. It was a, another failure, and that, uh, along with The Right Stuff.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: I think was well, I'm not, I'm I don't have, I'm not looking at the box office numbers. I'm just I think I read that someplace. One thing well, I mean, about the right stuff, that I think, that did hurt the right stuff is three hours and fifteen minutes long, and so that's a long sit for one thing. It was like almost like it was like it was like a, a, another Reds. It was like Reds in its scope. Without the
0: drama, yeah.
1: Without the
2: Without the sex appeal, without the humor, without the drama, without pretty much everything that made Ripley great. <laughs> a sense of urgency, Although you know, there's, a sex, you there's,
1: know? Pretty, there's plenty of sex appeal in, in the right stuff, I think. Well, and that scene at the very beginning—I didn't get the chance to watch to rewatch the whole movie—but I'm really impressed by the by the way that they handle uh, the relationship between Chuck Yeager and his wife.
0: I know, but he didn't deserve a supporting actor nomination. I mean, I understand that he's like you know, a God and that you have mm-hmm. to you know, mm-hmm. bow down to gods, get on your knees, undo their pants. And I'm just kidding.
3: <laughs> you can't.
0: You, yeah, I mean, he's, he is like blindingly gorgeous in that movie. It's horrifying to look at almost, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, he didn't do anything. <laughs> he's just like walking around. He's kind of cute and everything, but I mean, come on, that's a supporting actor nomination. I don't know. He was For like, joke. he was a
1: cowboy. Really? He's a cowboy in an airplane.
0: Compared to Kurt Russell and Silkwood, for instance, who who I think right. really mm-hmm. should have been nominated, you know.
1: The thing about The Right
2: Stuff is... Um I think it came along at, 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 at the perfect time because we, we, we've we talked on and on and on about how dark the 70s were and people were bummed about Watergate and people were bummed about Vietnam and people were bummed about the economy and there was just this sense that America was slumming and that we didn't feel very good about ourselves. And along comes Reagan on his horse and he, and he spins this phony story about the shining city on the hill trying to make us all feel better about ourselves. And here's the right stuff that harkens back to... Arguably the greatest time in our history where we did the coolest things in terms of the space race and finally putting a person on the moon and all that stuff, something that you could genuinely be proud of with very little to feel negative about and I think that probably it, it it told us it told it told America a story about itself that it wanted to hear, and I think
1: that probably had something to do with the success of it. In defense of the right stuff, I will say that it did do – I think it is more intelligent – if you want to dig into it, I think it's a really more – it makes a more intelligent commentary about what was happening to society because it, it covers the scope from like 1947 to 1968 or something. So those 20 years, there was a huge cultural shift in America, and it, and it sort of makes a pretty sharp commentary about the fact that the guys who flew the test, the tep, the test pilots were real men. They had the. They really did have the right stuff. The astronauts were all image. They were all a created image that was mm. fabricated to be on the cover of Life magazine and to be. They weren't even very skilled as 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 pilots. Really, they didn't have to be. They just had to sit back and let the computers do it.
0: Well, interestingly, um, in two things I want to say. One is that I went down to the California Science Center um, where they have the shuttle, and they mm-hmm. have the um, the. At the Science Center, they have the little pods that they were ejected. I mean, you can actually walk up to them and look inside them, so it's really cool. Right. But but the other thing is to just look at the power of it and the scope of it and to know that now we've ended the space program. And to look back, that's why it's important to see the right stuff, because that is an era that's gone, and it's never mm-hmm. coming back. The Republicans will never bring that back. For one thing, we don't have a Russia to compete against anymore.
2: We yeah, don't have the terrorists s- aren't going to be impressed with us landing people on the and moon. And they don't
0: have the money, and, and they're not our, our competitors. They don't have the technology and the money. So we do. We don't have any super—well, I guess you could say China maybe, or uh, but I can't think of another superpower that would be trying to do anything with space other than us. Maybe Russia. Um, again, but not the work.
1: And going thing. to the moon is, is something that was achievable. Going to Mars is a whole different thing. And to think, to conceive it, to t- consider what would it, it would take financially and te- technologically to get to another planet, which would be the logical next step. I mean, we've already been to the moon. There's no real point and no impetus and no motivation and no, 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 um. You no know, catchy sexy thing about going to the moon again because we've been there done that right so the next big thing would be to go to another planet and that is that's a very diff- much more difficult thing
0: and that's going to be technologically based and computer based and research based it's not they're not going to need astronauts for that they were mm-hmm. using the shuttle to go up and and do things like fix the hubble telescope which was huge that shuttle that yeah. i saw the endeavor that's what they did they fixed the hubble and and they were able to see way more clearly And that was an important mission. And so if they have any kind of mission like that, they're going to have to do something. They're going to need to rally um, astronauts again. The other thing I wanted to say was that Philip Kaufman said at the time, and a lot of people were saying at the time, one of the reasons why they all rallied around to write stuff was that it was a movie to counter Star Wars. It was a movie to counter the movement that we're seeing has come to fruition 30 years later. Totally come to fruition, um, that thing that they were already starting to fight back then. They didn't want it to be about special effects and big budget movies like that, and, and the right stuff was made specifically to counter that. He said he wanted it to be a movie that showed people that, you know, it was important to be a good person and to have character, and that made mm-hmm. you a hero, not. Mm-hmm being able to, you know, I don't know, be a, you know, a space guy who can shoot planets. And, you know, so they were trying to kind of um, infuse American culture with quality of character at that time, which I think is interesting, but the Americans weren't buying it. It was like Return of the Jedi was out that year. And let me just Mm -hmm. read you really quickly the top 10 box office for um, 30 years ago today. This is how it was. Return of the Jedi number one with 246 million. Most of the movies we see now can make that with without blinking. Terms of Endearment number two, wonderful character drama starring two women. Flashdance number three, female movie. Trading Places a kind of a funny comedy. War Games you know not sci-fi character. Octopussy okay fine James Bond. Sudden Impact um, that's Dirty Harry. Staying Alive the sequel to. Um, Whatever that movie was. Saturday Night Fever. Uh, Saturday
1: Night Fever, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton and Risky Business. I mean, it's so funny to look. And, you know, and The Big Chill is up there. Um, Yentel is number 18 and Silkwood is number 19. Mm-hmm. So look at that box office compared to, say, this year or last year, the top 10 of movies you'll see. It's completely different. You see sequels mostly and tent poles, and that's it.
2: How much did Terms of Endearment make?
0: One hundred and eight million.
2: That's stunning to me for that kind of a movie for that kind of dough.
0: I know, and that was before the Oscars too, because that, that this is box office for nineteen eighty three, not nineteen
1: eighty four. I mm. will say though that that Return of the Jedi uh, that the its total is more than the next three movies combined. You combine terms of Endearment, dance and Trading Places, and it amounts to what Return of the Jedi made. So it was so far beyond. And the sequels, they hadn't really perfected that whole thing yet. That was something they were—they were just—they were, just, were just getting the formula down. I will—I will, you know, those were some. Looking back on those top ten movies, there's some pretty lowbrow stuff there. I think Staying Alive and Mr. Mom and War Game. Well, War Games was good, but Trading Places, you know, it's not as if those were. Um, Movies like you would see in the mid nineteen seventies.
0: No, but but the thing, the important thing about that, yes, quality is going down. And yeah. and just to your point quickly about the sequels, one of the things they do now is they rename them. They don't um, call them just such and such. Although they did with Iron Man three, but usually, this is mm-hmm. you have Superman three, you have Jaws three D, you have Psycho two. Good lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't. They were just playing them as sequels. They weren't making them reboots, which they do now. And I'm yeah. kind of, I'm kind of deep in this because I'm reading Linda Ope's book, um, Sleepless in Hollywood, which is a mind blower, and you both should read that. But you know about how how Hollywood has changed so dramatically in the last ten years. And one of the things that they are doing with these poles is that those are the only kind of movies that get made. So if you're looking at this top ten. The movies that would not get made, Terms of Endearment would not, Flashdance would not, Trading Places would not, War Games maybe, Octopussy probably, it's James Bond, Sudden Impact maybe, Staying Alive no, Mr. Mom no, Risky Business, mm, that's on the borderline but comedies and you know character dramas gone pretty much mm-hmm. from the major studios unless you're talking about Spielberg or David Fincher or one of these big directors that can still get those kind of movies made, but she said, it's such a dramatic shift in trying to sell movies. They don't even have pitch meetings anymore, and story really doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how it's going to sell in China and Russia,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and how well these stars do internationally, and whether they can they can start a, a, a franchise.
2: Look at the hand rigging that went on in the le- couple of weeks leading up to Pacific Rim. It's not a sequel. It doesn't have any major stars in it. It's... it's not based on a comic book or a book or a TV show or something recognizable. Its major cachet is a wonderful director who has a vision for these kinds of things. It was extremely expensive to make and it's going to be considered probably a failure, at least in the United States. We'll see how it does overseas. But that's why Hollywood shies away from these movies because they're too expensive and and it's too much of a gamble to take a chance on an actual original idea, which... In the short term, makes economic sense, but in the long term, eventually you're going to run out of movies to make sequels of, and I guess then I guess they'll just start doing remakes. But it, it's sad to me that that a movie like Pacific Rim has such a hard time of it.
0: Same here, because it, it was it was conceived in this hideous atmosphere of tent poles, so it should have done better. When I was watching it, I was thinking, wow, Bene-, um, not Benicio del Toro. Um, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro um, he he co-wrote it. He directed it. He produced it. You know, he conceived it or whatever. This is an original idea in within the you know weird tentpole atmosphere of the, the kind of movies that get made now. And I mm-hmm. thought this is this movie is going to make so much money when I was watching it. That's what I thought because I thought, wow, this is entertaining. This is a movie me and Emma like. This is a movie fanboys are going to like. So many people are going to see this and love it. But then I went home and I read and was like, no, the box office projections are low. And then my friend Michael, our podcasting buddy, told me that none of his friends want to see it because they all think it's like Godzilla and um, Transformers. And they have no desire to see it. They think it looks ridiculous.
2: That's the thing. is it's, it's written off as a Transformers, but Transformers was huge because of all the fanboy idiots who went to it because they played with the toys when they were little kids. They knew it was going to be stupid. They didn't care because it pushed their little 13-year-old id buttons. Whereas Del Toro will have none of that he's he's drawing on you know stuff from when he was a kid godzilla and stuff like that and and making something new and different and people lump it into the same category when all the things that are wrong with transformers have nothing to do with anything other than the the sort of the genre that's the only connection that the two things have one of them is made by an artist with a creative vision and and a personality and it's just it's frustrating and it's made,
1: me it's made with wit and intelligence and style and 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 so much creative creativity went by into it and I, I was blown away by it it was a blast wasn't it? sasha didn't it you was. have a really good time at the movie i did I, Ram?
0: I, I thought yeah. at first i was sitting there with emma and we were sitting there just before riko kakuchi shows up and mm. and I, I nudged her and i said there's not a single woman in this movie do you notice that and mm-hmm. I was prepared to hate it because I thought, oh, my God, we're about to see a movie that start like The Hobbit that starts right. all yeah. the, and then here comes Rinko Kikuchi. And as soon as she shows up, to me, the movie just goes – it just soars from that point on because she's such an interesting character because – Idris Elba and her relationship is so interesting, and I hate to sound like a girl, it's like their relationship, and I know that's what I sound like, but as a moviegoer, that made me interested in it, and it made me care about the characters, and I was totally with them. It reminded me. Well, maybe me I'm of a girl
1: too, because I like that too. I like to see that. I like to see that. It has the best romance of any movie outside of um, Before Midnight oh, and, I know. and, and Pacific Rim. You know, and it's also because uh, Rico, uh, what, how do you pronounce her last name? Kikuchi. Kikuchi, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's such a fantastic actress. Oh, she has God. so much going on, in, on her, in her expressions and her eyes that it goes way beyond what was probably on the script uh, on the page. But mm-hmm. it's just because she, she brings so much more to the movie. I, I tweeted out that I think she's the best female um, hero in a science fiction movie since Ripley.
0: Oh, totally. That's why it reminded me of Star Wars because people forget that Star Wars had a really strong Princess Leia who was sarcastic and tough. You know, she was nobody's fool. And nowadays, like, the 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 sorry excuses for some hot girl shows up in, like, a, you know, a bikini and does a few high kicks, and that's supposed to be a tough girl. You know, no right. brains, dumb. You know, uh-huh. here, Rinko Kikuchi's character has—and I was so grateful to him for putting that character in. And I just thought, this is so great. Here's a movie that, you know, all these peop- kids are going to go see. All these young girls are going to go see. And they're going to see a woman who's equal to the man, even better as a pilot, you know? And that's great, and that's important, and and yet now, like you say, if it's considered a failure, that's it. It, it started, you know. An Asian woman in the in the lead and a black guy, you know, (laughs) it's like that's why it didn't succeed.
1: But maybe let's hope because because of what you said that the uh, Linda Oakes book, she says now they worry about now they're so much focused on what's going to sell in China. I do think this movie is going to do fantastically in Asia. I think it's going to just really go through the roof in Asia, and it's going to do really well globally. The same way that Life of Pi did. Life of Pi only made like 120 million domestically, which wouldn't have been a which might have been considered a failure considered how much it cost. But when you look the 600 million worldwide that it made that's sort of that's really impressive and so maybe let's hold out hope that pacific rim can pull pull in those kind of numbers maybe half a billion and if so then that's really good news because uh, it means there's another kind of formula that they maybe will will try out but i do think that what craig said is also so true it doesn't come with a pre pre pre-sold brand name Because it's not based on anything else, nobody knows, nobody is familiar with what it's going to be about. Because it it, it doesn't, it's not not based on a pre-existing situation.
2: Uh, If it's familiar, they
1: know that the the fanboys will show up for it because it's familiar. Even though they know Mm -hmm. it's going to
2: be stupid, they show up anyway. In this case, only half of them did, or a third of them, or a quarter of them, or whatever, and it wasn't enough.
0: Yeah. And it's so annoying that, that, we, that we're so branded now that we can only go with our five brands. And it's the same with food. I mean, like we always say, if you drive up the Interstate 5, all the mini malls that used to have original restaurants and, and mom-and-pop shops have, have all been replaced by about five of the same stores that you see in every mini mall on your way up the coast. And, and, and people take... Franchises. They, they take out franchises in Burger King and Starbucks and you know maybe even Chipotle or Subway and you know Seven Eleven. You need to
1: Dairy Queen and Arby's and just just those. It's all you ever see. You're right. You never see anything that's unique and and, and, and interesting. That and if you do, if those people, if someone is able to open up a place like that. People drive right past them yeah. They're they don't gonna, know what it is.
0: Selling Pacific Rim is like is like opening a new restaurant that nobody's ever, you know, that they don't know what they're getting. They're not going to go there. They're going to go to McDonald's, you know, the, the place they know and they're familiar with. And if this had, had starred someone in the Idris Elba role, like let's say, oh, I don't know, Robert Downey Jr.
1: Wouldn't that have been awful if he had <laughs> – <laughs> but I, I'm sure that we're probably preaching to the choir. Our listeners are probably people who did go see Pacific Rim but if there's anyone out there who's listening who didn't, or who just tell, and if you, even if you did, tell your friends and bring your friends and go see it again because I want to see it again. I'll probably see it two or three more times in theaters because it was just that much fun. And there's so much going on on screen that I couldn't even absorb it all the first time around.
0: I know, me too. And, and the visual effects are great and the mm-hmm. concept behind it is great. I kind of felt the same way about The Purge, which was trashed by critics, but. Mm-hmm. To me, it was a pretty interesting original concept for a movie made for like $3 million. And, you know, it, it does – after this whole Trayvon Martin thing, the idea of the purge isn't so far off. You know, this idea of the Stand Your Ground law so that we could purge undesirables from our society. Here's a chance to do that with Stand Your Ground. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I
1: didn't think I was going to like the purge. I just watched it out of sort of an obligation just to see what everyone was talking about. But I was impressed by – the degree to which it tried to really make some interesting social commentary
0: yeah me too. most
1: most horror movies most most home invasion movies don't ever try to do that
0: yeah i i was annoyed by the critical um beat down of that movie because sometimes i feel like critics are just standing there staring at their navels it's like <laughs> can't they pull their fucking head up for a minute and look around and see how the world is changing and see how movies are changing and realize that they are, they are a part of that and they have to take responsibility for that and they have to help push things in the right direction, you know? And so you reward original interesting works that were made for $3 million like that, you know? I mean, what a great idea. He, they, he sold us on this whole world just by whole, whole, making a movie in one house, you know? Mm-hmm. Great, great idea. And, you know, I feel like after we lost Roger Ebert, we really lost the great overseer, someone who gets the big picture and can and speak to it,
1: who could champion it and who people would listen to. And if, and if uh, we, there are critics out there who can champion a movie now, but they don't have the cachet, don't, they don't have the clout that Ebert did. And so people and there's lots of people who will stand up and, 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 and speak out uh, in support of a film, but they're just uh, they're, they're shouted down. Ebert would not be shouted down.
0: Because he didn't care. He didn't have anything to prove. He's not, like, having mm. to sit there and go, I didn't like Fruitvale Station. Pat me on the back because I'm the one who didn't like it. And I'm being right. so brave in writing my review of it. I'm going against the general consensus with my bad review of Fruitvale Station. <laughs> I deserve a medal for that.
2: <laughs> no, I've, I've really... seen Beyond the Green Curtain and I see the movie as a fraud.
0: yeah (laughs) that's because that's me i'm gonna take it down i'm the one man who's going to prevent that film from making any money and winning any oscars thing
1: thing about that is people critics used to want to be pauline kiel now critics want to be armand white you know it's such a different goal the critics have now they want to be they want to be rex reed they just want to be the guy they don't care that they're the person everyone hates they want to be that person what were you going to say,
0: Craig? Him. You were going to say you were going to say well, something. I was just
2: going to say, you know, it's uh, it's it's hard with a movie like Fruitvale Station because I can look at it, I saw it, I personally loved it, but you can identify flaws in it and and probably the I, I haven't read carefully the negative reviews because I just don't want to be bothered, but so I can't speak probably as, as forcefully on it as I would like to, but my sense is that people are rejecting it because they they overglorify the character to make it over dramatic when he ultimately suffers the fate that he suffers mm-hmm. when in fact I, that's what i was expecting of the movie going in i was expecting them to do that to turn this guy into a saint so that we're all horrified and outraged by what happens and i was surprised to the actual level that they tried to show him warts and all and show a lot of his his bad characteristics like characteristics how he'd been in jail and his temper and just certain things about him that made him sort of a sketchy person but the whole point of the movie to me is that It doesn't matter whether he's a good person, really, or a bad person. He's still a person, and there's still people who love him, and there are people who depend on him. And he was a huge part of a lot of people's lives, and he was taken away completely unnecessarily. And that's the drama of it. Whether or not he was Gandhi or not isn't the point. Mm -hmm. Um, And to look at a movie like that and say, okay, well, it's not a perfect movie. I didn't like all the things that they're doing, but then to like revel in hating it and wanting it to be be perceived as a terrible movie, you're broken inside if you're acting like that. There's something wrong with
1: you and you should really consider a new line of work. First of all, let's the three of us, at least the three of us, make a pact that we will never use the word flawed in describing a movie. Let's think of any other word that we can think of, but let's at, least, at least the three of us will never describe a movie as having flaws. Let's let's say that we will never do that again. I can try, I I'm afraid that I'm going to – I'll break that promise. I'll try. Another thing, though, too, I, 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 there was a screening last night at Fruitvale Station, and Michael B. Jordan was there, and he spoke um, – um, after the movie, after the movie, and after the Trayvon Martin verdict had been announced. He said he didn't want to answer any questions about that because nothing he could say could help any, anyone anyone get over their herd about that now. But he did say, and I believe him, I trust this guy, he spent a lot of time with, with – um, Uh, Oscar's Oscar's family and friends, and he said he was a complex person. Everyone has a different story about him. Everyone has a different idea about who he was. But what they showed on screen about him is 98% true, he said. He said it's 98% factual. That these were all things that they heard from his family and friends. So those were, his, those were the people who were closest to him and who loved him. Like he said, he meant a lot to those people, and so they're depicting on screen the kind of person that those people knew that he was because right. it was their experience of him. And Michael B. Jordan said that we wanted to make a movie that would be true to life. And we also wanted to make a movie that, of course, that, that his daughter would see years from now, and she would she would um, be honored by it. She would feel that like the movie honored him, it honored her father.
0: You know, to get back to the right stuff, one of the things that I thought about it was that um, the, the, uh, the, the right stuff is a concept that could be applied to so many different things now, like film criticism. You could mm-hmm. take six of the best film critics, and you could look at their early lives, and you could see who they were and how they got to be where they ended up. Or filmmakers, film directors, the right stuff, you know, pick 10 directors who who had Martin Scorsese being one of them, you know, Woody Allen, whatever, who had these great lives, you know, these hard lives, some of them, before they took to filmmaking and storytelling and writing. You know, the right stuff is about, you know, not character as in the Republicans' idea of character, you know, you don't cheat on your wife, your taxpayer, whatever, you know. More like character, as in your experiences shape who you become and what you can contribute um, to the
2: world. Yeah, you're not born an astronaut, you're built into one through experience and through your own hard work.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. That's right So The Right Stuff and Does I think, send
2: that
1: message And I think it, The Right Stuff Made that Made that point And I think It made a, made made. I think that was Part of the reason That it was made And I think Especially I think it was Based on the book By Tom Wolfe Who One of his nonfiction books You know And uh, I haven't read it But people say It's fantastic And I'm really Looking forward to it By the way The Right Stuff Is coming out on, In its 30th Anniversary Blu-ray edition In, in November mm-hmm. So anyone Who hasn't seen it May want to wait Until November To wait Until you can see it In all this glory because the sound design and the cinematography are oh, fantastic cinematic. the special effects there are special effects because there's a lot of flying but they're all practical effects they were they were done like with taking an airplane model and throwing it in the air a bunch of times until you got just the right angle of it you know so you could cut that in it, it was they were practical effects done with model airplanes they weren't computer-generated effects
2: and even even though it wasn't a huge hit I think it still had its cultural moment as well. I mean just the whole idea the way Sasha was talking about it the whole idea of the right stuff. That's like a it's not a cliche but it's a thing. It's a it's a thing that you think of and that movie was sort of a part of that. And so it we dismissed it a little bit because it is a little dull. It's a little bit respectful and dry. But there's good stuff there too. And it's important not to lose sight of that.
1: I'm not going to dismiss it. I it's, one, it's probably one of my top 3 Favorite movies of the year, and maybe right up, it might be an equal to in terms of endearment. It's, I would say I would put them side by side as my two favorite movies of the year. And it wasn't overlooked by the Oscars by any means. I think it did. Big, the Big Chill and the Right Stuff were both hurt by the fact that they didn't have director nominations. We know from experience looking back on Oscar history that without a director's nomination, people were going to look at your Best Picture nomination and think that it's not all there somehow. But it did win five Oscars. No, wait, it won four. But it was nominated for eleven, I think. And so it was not overlooked. It was pretty well. It was pretty appreciated for the time. It was just overshadowed by the movie that was the feel-good, emotional, uh, absolutely superb terms of terms of endearment. I, I
2: meant overlooked more by audiences mm-hmm. rather than, okay. than Oscars. Right. Obviously, Oscar was. The, I, I think Oscars. Why. I remember it as well as I do because I don't think I saw it probably the year that it came out. I think I saw it probably later on when it came out on video after the huge deal that that Oscars had made about it. But um, I don't dislike it, but I would gladly kick it in the big chill out of the uh, Best Picture nominees. And I would put in um, Educating Rita or um, Silkwood or a movie that nobody probably even saw at that point, Local Hero, one of Bill Forsyth's movies with... uh, Um, Burt Lancaster,
1: one of my all-time top ten favorite movies. I haven't seen it. Uh, I'll put it on my list. I would would probably, I agree with you. I would like to have seen Silkwood nominated. That would have been great. I would
0: have dumped The Dresser. And Tender Mercies. I think Tender Mercies is an actor movie. It should have just been in the actor mm-hmm. category. I might See, have I'm, kept in I would the right disagree stuff.
2: because, I mean, it is. It's one of those movies. I, I just watched it. It's a, I think it's a writer's movie and an actor's movie, not necessarily a director's movie. And it's a definitely a case where the actor took a took a good movie and made it a really good movie. But I still think it's better than The Big Chill or The Right Stuff.
0: Okay, but I think that the movie that should have been put in there would have been Silkwood, which is a crime that it wasn't in there. And obviously, The Year of Living Dangerously, which I think is maybe one of my favorite films of all time and, and something that really should be revisited by anyone who hasn't seen it who might be listening to this. It's magnificent performance. It did win the Supporting Actress um, nomination for uh, Linda Hunt. But the whole movie, the script, the concept, the acting, the romance, uh, everything about it, it talks about what it means to be a journalist and what journalist ethics are. It talks about... Um, communism and you know radical terrorism and and gross white people abusing you know <clears throat> prostitutes. And-
3: Damn it! What the hell's the matter with you? What you, cut it. you made the broadcast. Now I didn't source that back to Jill. I got that someplace else. not That's not the
1: yes, point. Yes, it is. It is the point. And when this thing breaks, it could change the whole political shape of Southeast Asia. And how far am I loyalties to Jill supposed to go? I would have given up the world for her. You won't even give up one story.
2: But it's not just a story, damn it. It's it's the bloody story. Now can't you understand that?
3: Don't you understand? You've lost Jill. What? What what, what you told her. You I told us. I gave her, something. her to you, and now I'm taking her back. Do you understand?
2: You gave it to me. For Christ's sake, you mad little bastard! You think you can control people's lives just because you got them in your bloody files?
3: I believed in you. I thought you were a man of light. That's why I gave you those stories you think are so important. I made you see things. I made you feel something about what you write. I gave you my trust. So did Jill. I created you.
0: You know, exploiting the poor. It's just a wonderful movie all the way around. It's way better, I think, than any of... Than four of these movies. Terms of Endearment's probably better. I would still keep in the right stuff because of what it kind of said about the space program. Particularly now the space program has ended. I think Mm -hmm. that it's a really important part of our history. I wasn't bored at all watching it. I was enjoying it all the way through. But it was kind of a flat line, you know. Not that that's a bad thing, but... Mm. I just think there are other movies that, to me, were better. I don't know why they didn't go for... Um... The other thing is we should talk about Yentl, because if there was one thing that really hovered over Oscars that year it was Barbra Streisand and Yentl. It was such a big deal that it didn't get nominated, that people actually protested outside um, outside the Academy on Oscar night. Uh, it was said in the Washington Post after Yentl's huge success... They, they were comparing her to Orson Welles. Um, she totally, like, produced the movie, starred in the movie, you know, all of that. And they said it would constitute a Hollywood scandal if Barbara Streisand were denied an Oscar nomination for her um, directing Yentl. And um, she, it only got Amy Irving for actor. She was completely ignored by both the DGA and Oscar. No consideration at all. If she were a guy, there's no way that would have happened. Um,
1: I because she that. wrote it, she starred in it, she, she um, directed it and produced it. She, was the, she did everything. She was like the Orson Welles of Yentl.
0: And the, the now you know um, National Organization of Women released a statement. We view this as another attempt to keep women in their place by not recognizing the quality and quantity of women's input into American society. And in this case, because the film Yentl has feminist overtones, it is apparent that Miss Streisand is too – being discriminated against because of her conviction and for being a woman. But that wasn't, it didn't stop there. Um, a group calling itself PEP, Principles, Equality, and Professionalism in Film, um, took it personally. They announced they'd be picketing on Oscar night. We're not avid Barbara Streisand fans by any means, they said. Um, but the way the Academy treated her is really the spark that lit the flame. She worked 15 years to make that movie, just like Rich, Richard Attenborough worked 20 years on Gandhi. But even, even though the movie represents a significant accomplishment, the Academy doesn't even want to admit that a woman is responsible for
1: it. Mm, right. And they, the pickets that they helped, that they um, uh, paraded around out front in, in front of the uh, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion said 1927 to present, 273 male directors, zero women directors nominated. Yeah. So it's what, what, it's what we were saying the year that Catherine Bigelow was finally nominated
0: And she went overseas after the Oscars and was, was honored by the French And the Europeans all applauded her and appreciated her It was only here that they did not.
1: I think she did win the Golden Globe Award for Best Director. Am I, am I wrong about that? I'm not sure. So I think that, that she wasn't completely overlooked, but by the Academy, she definitely was. And I think, I, I hate to say, and because it's not her fault, and she, she, she had every right to speak out about it, but she was very vocal about the fact about the way she felt she was being treated before and after she was overlooked. And that probably rubbed some people the wrong way. I'm sure that it rubs some people the wrong way. She said that um, in Hollywood a woman can be an actress, a singer, and a dancer, but they don't let you be much more.
0: Well, she's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely Shh. she's right. She had every right to say that, but that's not what the guy that's what not that's not what the eighty percent male academy membership wanted to hear.
0: And let's face it, she's not beautiful. I mean, look at how it kind of relatively easy it was for Catherine Bigelow to slip into that role
1: mm. because mm-hmm. she's
0: so stunning to look at and women are measured by their looks in Hollywood, especially um, the last 20 years of Oscar history, the last 30 years. One thing that I said, apparently
2: said to um, about Janet Maslin's negative New York Times review I spent more than 10 years researching the material. How long did she spend on it? <laughs> she's not mm-hmm. definitely not, she's right, but she's definitely not doing herself any it favors. It was
1: so slimy what happened in Hollywood that year. Another thing that happened Charles Champlin, who was the Los Angeles uh, Times film critic at the time, he had one line in his review that said, She did a sensational job of pre planning and editing. It carries an almost palpable aura of being a laborer of many hands and people wanted to twist that around and think that spielberg and and um a couple of other directors had had helped her edit it
3: yeah
0: just they didn't like believe with,
1: that she could have edited her by by herself they yeah. thought that she had help behind the scenes and that that was he, that's what he was implying so that's the story that leaked out they that didn't was the rumor to. and the gossip they didn't want that they it to spreading. be anything
0: else they wanted it right. to be that mm-hmm. just like they want catherine bigelow's movie to really have been directed by mark boll and mm-hmm. um and and uh, sophia coppola's movies really to have been um directed by uh her father you know that's Mm. that's how they and angelina jolie now has roger deakins as her cinematographer so of course everyone will say that the directing has gotten better because roger deakins is basically directing the movie for her you Mm. know but i'll tell you this i didn't i don't think yentl is the world's greatest movie i appreciate the kind of details she she did with the lighting where she in one scene she painted um amy irving's lips to match the uh the candlelight. she was that close attention to detail and she uh-huh. wanted to do everything and there's no way you're going to be a woman and do everything and have people even especially since she came in as a singer that was never right. she was never going to get that kind of respect from Hollywood just like Madonna never will they, She just would never get it so it's one thing to be Catherine Bigelow you're a painter you're a director a serious director it's another thing to be I'm Barbara Streisand a pop singer Broadway singer and I want to direct and write and star and you know to them it probably was just too much ego and they wanted to see mm-hmm. her take a fall for that. I, th- I disagree um, with their choice in Big Chill over Yentl. I know Big Chill was more popular, but you, you can't tell me that's a better movie. I don't think not Yentl is even a great mm-hmm. movie, but I don't think Big Chill is, 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 is better.
1: Not at Yentl. all. I just not. Another thing that probably hurt the movie is Isaac Meshiva um, Singer, the author of the original story— uh, spoke out about the movie before he saw it. He said that he, um, first I'll see the killing, he said, and then I'll perform the autopsy. He announced that he was going to do that as if he, w- he was prepared to take it down. And when he, after he saw it, he said, I will say that Miss Dryson was exceedingly, exceedingly kind to herself. The result is that Miss Dryson is always present on screen while Yentl is absent. The whole splashy production is nothing but commercial value." And that infuriated a lot of the women in Hollywood. Um, um, Walter Matthau's wife said, called him a mean-spirited, ungenerous, and cranky man. And she said that in an interview in the Los Angeles Times. And Streisand herself said, "If if a writer doesn't want his work changed, then he shouldn't sell it. <laughs> she, if he doesn't a, want his got, book changed, then he shouldn't sell it. She's
0: got major balls, Babs does. Yeah, I mean, that's an yeah, incredible issue. But he's right. I mean, when she went and directed, um, this is awful for me to admit because when I was a young wannabe filmmaker and I was looking at people like Penny Marshall and Nora Ephron and Barbara Streisand, and I was saying, you know, yeah, it's great that they're successful directors, but they're just directing shit. And I thought that um, uh, Barbara Streisand's Prince of, the, Prince of, Prince of Tides was a mm-hmm. really incredibly moving story, but she inserts herself in there as this beautiful woman with, a, you know, and she, she keeps showing herself and, you know, just looking beautiful and please gaze upon me. And, you know, I don't think you can do that as a woman. I don't think you can do both. You can't be both the auteur director and the beautiful, admired woman on screen. And men can do it. Men do do hey. it.
1: Men do it all the time. Look what Orson Welles and all look all the directors who have directed themselves in movies. Look at uh, Ben Kevin Affleck. Costner. Look at Ben, ben Affleck, Cleaning and taking yeah. his shirt
0: off. You know, I mean, come on, Mel Gibson, right? And uh, Warren Beatty. I mean, they they do okay. it. It's just that um, that you they can't if you're anything. a woman. It's a double standard. But but you know, I've changed my mind. Obviously, on on my opinion on all of those directors, and I respect what they did and the success they had. And I was being way too hard on them. Mm. But think. that was a
1: travesty. Looking back and looking at the directors who were nominated, like you said, Bruce Beresford nominated instead of Barbra Streisand. I mean, uh, it's not as if he was. The, 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 the Tender Mercies had anything that was uh, that really showed a strong directorial hand in it. You know, they it's just actor and screenplay.
2: They just
0: pick yeah. the movie they like and the people they like. And Ingmar Bergman for Fanny and Anne Alexander. That's a nice toss off to a director that they really love. But it mm. is a big fuck you to Barbara Streisand and a fuck you to women, just in general, that they would honor Yentl in that way. Even though, you know, they didn't like the movie. They, they I think, should have found a way to honor her and her hard work. But fuck them, you know? They're never going to be that. And wait till you see what, what ass-rimming they do for the movies this year, you just wait. It's going to get mm-hmm. ugly. They They like this kind of controversy, I realize, looking back, because... That means more people are talking about the Oscars, so they're hoping more people will watch the Oscars. I'm sure that the picketing of Barbara Streisand only brought more publicity to them, and they liked it.
1: You know. Mm-hmm. Although that, I believe that it was the lowest Oscar-rated broadcast, the uh, the lowest Oscar night broadcast in Academy history, wow. in television history at that time. So they, they knew that they were they were also worried about that. They were worried about, you know, we're losing we're, – we're, we're getting a reputation for having lost touch with what the audience likes to see. We're, we're nominating films that nobody is going to see.
0: Ah, and it's sort of a foreshadowing for what's going mm-hmm. to happen at the Academy where they are definitely on Oscar Island and, and they're off onto their themselves. And there's a whole other world out there. You're right. I mean the movies people were seeing at the box office like we were just talking about – are, you know, big, broad comedies like Trading Places. And and the Academy's caught back in it, you know, in a time warp. Like, they're not going to honor or think about somebody like Eddie Murphy bursting onto the scene with as he did in Trading Places, you know.
1: All right. And can we say another thing about 1983? When you look, I know that Trading Places was the number three or four top box office movie of the year. But when you, there's a site, a site that I think that you both know about called Films 101. It, mm-hmm. it 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 ranks the films uh, with star ratings from the the best of the year it ranks about 50 films per year from top to bottom best the best reputation to worst reputation you have to go down about 30 films before you find any movie that has any black person in it at all wow wow you know, I could I could name them, but it would take a long time to name all 30 films that have no black people in them. You have to go all the way down, halfway down the list, to to find and about uh, number 35. You find Trading Places. So there was like no black people on screen. That's incredibly bizarre and and disgusting.
0: It is disgusting. It's and it's it's about to get just. I mean, it's it's going to completely be the same for the next 30 years until. Until things change with um, with Halle Berry and Denzel Washington, um, those mm. guys change things. Those actors change things. But if you look at these movies, I mean, some of them are just so, you know, safe and boring and bland. I mean, they're, mm. they're good. Like a lot. *Silkwood* is a really good movie still. Like you can watch that, and you can get out of it everything that you got out of it. It's it's a tremendous performance by Meryl Streep. You know, I haven't seen it in a while. I think you guys just watched it.
2: um... Yeah, it's easy to take her for granted. Looking at her now, because we know what she's capable of. But I'm trying to—I tried to put myself in a headspace, of of just based on the four or five high-profile roles that she'd had up to that point. And it was another—it would have—it must have seemed like another big surprise. I mean, nothing—nothing she does anymore quite surprises me. Although I take that back, because honestly, I thought that. That playing Julia Child was going to be impossible because you can't avoid the Saturday Night Live sketch version of her. Yet mm-hmm. she manages. She manages even then, after all these years, to pull that off. So basically, she she never fails to surprise me, and she does it again with Silkwood.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Silkwood was also written by two women. It was written by Nora Ephron and Alice Arlen. So that yeah. was a, that was a nice rarity too. And they were nominated, so that's a good thing. But it's a shame that it got five nominations and won nothing because over the years that movie has also. It's one of those movies that get, it, His reputation has be, has gotten better and better over the years.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and that was also another big thing in, in this Inside Oscar book, um, Damien Bona and Mason Wiley's book that I've been reading from. Um, that Cher, this is, this is how you, back before, you know, I really started writing about the Oscars, when I would pay attention to the Oscars, what, what, the, what we would sort of get wind of was someone's mm-hmm. Oscar story. So Cher's Oscar story really began here because when they, when Mike Nichols called her for Cher, for, um, for Silkwood, she was doing Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. She was just starting to get respect as an actress. Like Barbara Streisand, she'd come from pop. And she wasn't, she didn't quite have that respect yet. She was working hard to get it. Like she was in acting class, she was trying out for roles, she was trying to become a serious actress but she was upstaged by her own persona her her outfits mostly and her
1: mm-hmm. her shareness. she probably <laughs> probably she still had her yeah her shareness. she had probably was still had the stunning and share uh, show was maybe on TV television at the time No, i'm I think not sure was, about that was it was it not? over
0: by then it was over but, okay. she, but she
1: but
2: that's was, what everybody remembered her from she was yeah. going okay. on
0: to become a famous actress so she when when this came around how she totally deglammed she took all of her makeup off she played a lesbian mm. you know she is almost unrecognizable in the part and you know, did the critics were closely divided between Linda Hunt and Cher for the for the win, but it was a dr- it was a drama that Cher didn't win because she's such a big star, and so that set her up to then win for um, Moonstruck. That's like how the Oscar stories go. Like Ben Affleck, because he was snubbed for Best Director, is now poised for a big win because his Oscar story has just started. And Cher, mm-hmm. this time she you know she was just starting that, and then when she you know, would wear everything she wore to the award shows was was a big news story. It was like there was Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. and there was Cher that year. That's what people were talking about.
2: It should be pointed out that she's spectacular in Silkwood. It's a pretty small part, but she's great in it, and it's it's amazing to look at now as as. I, like you said, she had come back to the five and dying Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, also before a little bit before that. But still, I think it had to have come out of nowhere for most people who saw her in that and maybe didn't even recognize who it was because she's just terrific. <sighs>
3: What's the matter? Nothing. <sighs> I miss Drew.
0: Call him up. Angela went back to her husband.
3: Oh. Gee, darling, I'm sorry. You okay? Well, you could have thought of that this morning before you had your 19th nervous breakdown. Hey, don't you lay this off on me now. Anybody else would have thrown Angela out day one. No, when Drew was here, you weren't like this. You think Angela left on account of me? Let me tell you something, girl. Drew left on account of you. On account of you and Angela. If you believe that, you're even crazier than people say.
0: You took about as good care of Drew as you took of your kids.
3: know that you took good care of your kids. You know, the only thing everybody says I'm crazy about is to live with you.
0: You mean with
3: a dyke? I mean with a person who thinks she's in love with a person who puts lipstick on stiffs and smells like formaldehyde. She didn't smell like formaldehyde. She did so, too. And I'm so tired of her jokes. Drew's right Maybe we should just quit Get out of here Move someplace where it's clean (laughs) You and me?
0: And she came out and said she wanted to win the Oscar, so she was pretty much open about it, and she was going to win eventually. She just had that thing, you
1: know. That- she won the Golden Globe, but of course she would. Of course she would win the Golden Globe. It, it wouldn't matter who else was nominated besides Cher for the Golden Globe. She was going to get it, you know. That you know, because that's just how they are. So that's not surprising. But at least she did come away with that. Yeah, and, and- she was nominated, but she was you know, across the board. She was recognized. She was nominated even for a BAFTA award. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress.
0: Well, remember, BAFTAs came out after the Oscars. Then,
1: oh, that's right, yeah. I
0: know it's hard for people to remember, but it changed around the year two thousand is when they
1: switched. Mm-hmm. So, so they were saying they would always play sort of like uh, me too.
0: Yeah, and we should mention that Alfre Woodard was also nominated that year for Cross Creek. She was, you know, one. She is remains one of the few black actresses to get nominations back then and she did for cross creek and she oh
1: i had not thought about that i didn't yeah. even i didn't i had not i wasn't looking at the list of nominations so i didn't even realize it. that's amazing
0: yeah and she um she had a, a really good run there in the 80s she was she was one of the most talked about and respected actresses at the time of course in typical hollywood fashion there really wasn't anywhere for her to go as a lead actress Mm-hmm. So supporting she remains, just like now Viola Davis will have a really hard time getting back where she was after da- um, the help. She'll, she'll probably ha- never get back there, whereas Meryl mm-hmm. Streep is just going to be at bat, at bat, at bat, at bat for every part she ever has, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Let Can we say, though, in spite of the fact that we do have a lot of problems with the people who weren't nominated and the way that people were mistreated, that overall, uh, it was a pretty good selection of Oscar winners that year. I don't have any problem. I'm really I'm, – I think Robert Duvall in Tender Murchies was fantastic. Uh, uh, like you said, it wasn't totally an actor's movie, and he owned that movie. It was also a fantastic script written by Horton Foote.
3: I hadn't had a drink in two months. I think the drinking is behind me. Do you? I'm glad I don't think it gets you anywhere. You ever thought about marrying again? Yeah, I have. You. I thought about baby. I guess it's no secret how I feel about you. A blind man could see that. Would you think about marrying me?
1: Yeah, I will. Yeah, who wrote, who wrote um, To Kill a Mockingbird? And you know, um, he's really a you know great reputation and a really a great writer. And, he and was, so
0: Robert Duvall was collecting off of a very just like Shirley MacLaine was collecting off of very long hard, you know, careers in Hollywood that, that had gone unrecognized. I think that was Robert Duvall's first win, right?
1: Mm-hmm. I think so. And like I said, he had done a lot of supporting roles before then. He was almost thought of as a character actor, not a lead actor at all. He did a really savvy thing. He didn't, he didn't uh, do any publicity before the nominations, but as soon as he did the nominations, he started making the rounds and he pointed out, really pretty cleverly, I think, that his, that his rivals were all British. British. Yeah. And he said something like, if I can find it real quick here. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: They're all Limeys, I think, or something like yeah,
1: that. Right. Yeah, right. He said uh, it's the Limey syndrome. He said there's the, there's the attitude that a lot of people in Hollywood have is that what they do in England is somehow better than what we do here. And so that's really a catchy thing. You know, that can really catch people's attention and think, yeah, wait a minute. What are we doing awarding all of these British actors all the time right. when we have some really fine actors that, that are homegrown? And so being up against four different British actors really helped him that year. And he was aware of that. And he 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 slipped that into his campaign. I
0: know. And he, he for I think this year, this 1983 was one of the easiest. It would have been one of the easiest Oscars to predict because. The winners were so far and away the, the winners. Like, the only close race was really between um, Linda Hunt and Cher. Everybody else was, uh, you know, a done deal. You're not going to give it to Shirley MacLaine for Terms of Endearment. She was winning all the Critics Awards. There was no way she was going to lose that. She'd been nominated already for Some Came Running in 1959, The Apartment in 1961, Irma La Douce in 1964... The turning point in 1978 and then terms of endearment at 49 years old, one of the most well-known and beloved actresses in Hollywood finally wins her Oscar. It was a big moment for her. It was a shame that she hadn't won before, but there was no way anyone else was winning
1: that. Terms of Endearment. I will say it's the kind of movie that if you just told me what it was about, I would I would cringe and I would say I'm not interested. I want, don't want to see that. And even when I think about it, when I get away from it, I haven't seen it for a few years and I try to remember what it was about, I think, nah, do I really want to see that again? But I watched it last week. Man, that movie sucks you in. It is so. The performances are so detailed. There's so much nuance. Even the, even the set director decoration, which is by Polly Platt, I think, is fantastic. The music. The music. When I hear that. When I first hear that theme, it just just grabs him by the heart, and I just tear up. You know yeah. that movie is fantastically. Balanced and well put together. It's
2: What's good. interesting about it to me, watching it now all these years later, is that probably the only thing that kept me from hating it at the time in my callow youth was the performance by Jack Nicholson, and that's mm-hmm. actually now my least favorite part of the entire film. There's nothing wrong with it, but mm-hmm. I like the two female performances better. I like McLean and Winger, and um, obviously Lithgow was terrific. But I think Jeff Daniels gets overlooked because <laughs> mainly mm-hmm. because of his character is such a turd, but mm-hmm. uh, he's his two of his scenes are of my favorite scenes in the movie the one where where um deborah winger tells him to drive away slowly and he burns no, out no, getting no. away from shirley MacLaine, and then at the end where he basically could have been portrayed as the asshole the entire film and, and made to be the bad guy but he's he's given a nice grace moment at the end where um deborah winger's friend kind of puts his her head on his shoulder and he sort of breaks down this is at um deborah winger's funeral and i could just just the expression on his face, I could picture everything that he was thinking. He was totally thinking about how, yeah, I'm the asshole in this picture, but and, and now my wife is gone, and I can never make up for that, ever. No matter how good I treat everybody else that I ever meet, I will always be what I was to my wife, who is now dead. And I could just totally identify with that, and it's all written
1: on his face. And it's a That's great so performance it- that, that, was, that was overlooked. I'm so glad you mentioned about what's written on his face because although the dialogue, the writing in terms of Edirman is brilliant and that there are so many great quotable lines in terms of Edirman, you could watch that movie with the sound down and it it functions as a silent movie just because they're so expressive. Mm -hmm. Everyone's eyes and and I just – I'm amazed by it really to see it again and to see – you just rarely see movies like that anymore where you have an ensemble cast where everyone has so much going on behind their eyes.
3: I got some good news. So? What's well, that? I'm officially pregnant. I mean, we haven't gotten the test back yet, but you know me, I'm never late. Well, no, I don't understand. Um, if you're not happy for me, I'm gonna get so mad if you're not happy. <laughs> Why should I? Why should I be happy about being a grandmother?
1: Does this mean you won't be knitting the baby any booties? (laughs) Flap.
3: Every time you get more than two drinks in you, you confront me. And I won't have it. I won't have it not in this house. Excuse me.
1: You can just go down the cast list, though. You have to go way, way down the cast to find someone who doesn't turn in a very memorable performance. Patsy's fantastic. Everyone, all, everyone in the family and all their friends are just—they're so indelible.
0: And Deborah Winger was um, actually—that this is one of the movies where she got written, you know, off as a kind of a quote-unquote difficult actress because she she and Shirley MacLaine didn't get along, and one of the reasons for that was that. Um Deborah Winger was such a serious actress that she asked she asked to only be addressed as Emma on set, always. Oh. And then um she also carried around like weights on her stomach when she walked around to, to be like pregnant and then to feel more pregnant and then to feel more pregnant. She was doing all this like mm. um, you know, what do you call it? method stuff
1: method actor yes yeah. like it reminds me of what Laurent olivier said to someone once why don't you just try acting my dear yeah
0: exactly that's basically what shirley <laughs> McLean was saying
2: yeah and that's the thing is even even a male actor has trouble getting away with that um what's his name daniel de lewis took a lot of shit for some of the stuff that he supposedly did for lincoln and it, it's even harder i think for a, a woman to take herself that seriously and not have people be stupid about it
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's a shame that, it, that's, that it's true. But the, but the, anything that a woman does is going to be uh, judged more harshly, you know, than what a guy can get away with. Yeah, it's so well, another thing she's, I like. She's not doing anything different. It's it's yeah dedication to her craft. The neat thing about Terms of Endearment, when you watch it, the the person who you're supposed to be focused on in each scene, uh, the person maybe who's speaking at the time, or the person that the that the that the composition, the framing, and everything is built around, you can look at that person, and that's fine. But there's also everyone else is doing interesting things all around them. You know, everyone, all of the all of the peripheral characters are doing really fascinating things. If you if you, it's so complex and so nuanced. I really I can't talk say enough. How much I love this movie! I
0: know, me too. And then, and you know, when she, when the little boy walks out of the house and he's sitting there, and his little rabbit foot just tap taps on the step. Mm. You know, that's just one of the another yet another beautiful moment. All the kids are so good. The older boy is great. The little middle kid will break your heart in two, mm. and the little girl is adorable. I mean, they're just. And how do you get, like, a movie that's so well-cast with such great kid actors? You know, they're they're just so... And the, the scene where they have to say goodbye to her is probably the hardest scene in any movie that for me to watch is, is when she has to say goodbye to her kids.
1: I can't even think about it without getting choked up.
3: We're not afraid of girls. What makes you think that? Well, you may be later on. I doubt it. Why don't you shut up? shut up you shut up Teddy, give me a kiss come on tell me you be sweet be sweet and stop trying to pretend like you hate me i mean it's silly i like you okay then will you listen especially close what you listen real hard i said what I know you like me. I know it. For the last year or two, you've been pretending like you hate me. I love you very much. I love you as much as I love anybody. As much as I love myself. And in a few years, when I haven't been around to be on your tail about something or irritating you, you're going to remember that time that I bought you the baseball glove when you thought we were too broke. No, or when I, I read you those stories or when I, I let you goof off instead of mowing the lawn lots of things like that and you're gonna realize that you love me and maybe you're gonna feel badly because you never told me but don't I know that you love me so don't ever do that to yourself all right okay okay he said okay okay you two should run along take care give me a kiss i was so scared but i think it went really well don't you yeah
1: let's just give a shout out to larry mcmurtry who gave us HUD? Who gave us Terms of Endearment? Who gave us Lonesome Dove? Last the Last season. Picture Show? Broke who back co-wrote Brokeback Mountain? Oh my God!
0: He um, that book. I was so in love with Larry McMurtry after Terms of Endearment that I went and read all you know this book and a lot of his other books. All my friends are going to be strangers. He is a you know really uh, wide variety of styles. He he does do mm-hmm. the westerns, but he also writes these weird little character books like this and. You know, the Terms of Endearment Book is a lot different from the movie. The characters oh, I... are all really, really different. And so it is, to me, a very much a James L. Brooks movie. Like, he mm-hmm. almost just totally redid it. He took the same basic idea, but the characters, it's not as, as funny. And he said that when he cast um, Shirley MacLaine, because every actress in Hollywood wanted that part, um, they all knew it was going to be a big Oscar-winning role. And um, he said he picked her because she was the only one that saw it was a comedy.
2: Hmm. Everybody
0: else was playing it seriously. And and it is. It's one of the funniest and one of the saddest movies you'll ever see. That's what uh, makes it
2: great. The, the hospital scene, the only thing that kept me from being completely destroyed watching it was I kept thinking intellectually how they got the little kid to cry like that without totally traumatizing for the rest of his life. Because he's totally <laughs> so a believable, crying little kid. And it's like, what, what did they tell that kid to make him do that? That had to have been cruel. Oh, that's, that's the only thing that kind of kept my intellectual distance on it and kept me from being a total sobbing mess. You almost think she almost doesn't quite believe it herself. She is hurt by the way that he's acting. But yeah. she's doing it for him and standing up and saying, you know, when you're older and you look back at this moment know that i knew that you didn't hate me
0: doesn't that just make you cry
2: (laughs) it's like the mom's last ultimate act to save her kid even on her deathbed come on
0: you know he's gonna grow up and he's gonna look back and he's gonna say i was such a dick to my mom before she died
2: yeah because that totally happens i've done i've done that with both of my parents who left two and I was a decent kid but I, but in the aftermath you think of every little time that you weren't great to them or you wonder if you were good enough or if they knew that you loved them and all of these different things and it and it's death and you can't go on the other side of that and make up for it it's just done and so she is doing that kid a huge solid by saying that he's still going to be traumatized but he'll at least ultimately have that to hold on to that little anchor of of him knowing that his mother knew that he loved her because if he didn't have that he, was, he would be a mess for the rest of his life.
0: Oh, God, it's a hard movie to get through, though. I cannot, ever since I had my daughter, I have not been able to watch the second, the last part of that movie. I can only watch the first part, and it has, I mean, if it isn't enough that we have this great love story with with, um, Jack Nicholson and Shirley if it isn't enough that we have this wonderful performance by Deborah Winger and that she is... She's dying, and we have to watch this sad scene where Shirley MacLaine says, I thought it was going to be easy. You know, I thought when she finally went, it would be easy, but it's not. It's so hard. Mm.
3: Mr. Horton. Stupid. somehow I thought, somehow I thought when she finally went that it would be a relief.
0: If it wasn't enough i'm sitting here crying i can't believe it's so embarrassing
1: <laughs> notice i'm not even talking i can't talk because i'm gonna i'm gonna hear <laughs> my voice cracking if i do i can't but if, speak
0: if all of that isn't enough you still have that give my daughter the shot scene which is like one of the best in any movie <laughs> <No>. ever <laughs>
3: excuse
1: me it is after 10
3: give my daughter the paint shot please mrs greenway i was going to the- oh good go ahead in just a few minutes well please it's, it's after 10 it's after 10. I don't see why she has to have this pain. Ma'am, it's not my patient. It's time for her shot. You understand,
1: do something. All she has to do is hold on until 10 And it's back.
2: It is. it still plans.
1: Answer. well from the very beginning from the very opening scene where she where she's afraid that, she, that her daughter that uh, Emma has crib death and she leans over closer yeah. and closer trying to hear that she's <laughs> breathing and in order to get the response out of her she pinches her yeah. and starts making her cry it's so perfect That's- It's such a perfect summary of what what their relationship is all about. Oh God! I love you so much. I want to hurt you to make sure that you're okay.
0: Yeah. When I was (laughs) young, as a teenager, I always wondered, "What does that mean in terms of endearment? What does she mean by that? What does Mm -hmm. that mean?" And you know, it's it's that Mm -hmm. by the end, all of those words, you know, you see what kind of meaning they have to them. You know.
1: So we have no problem at all with any of the Oscars that it won and, or any of the nominations that it got and, or anything else that it beat. We really are are, are really approved. This is really the first time in, in, in several years that we approve of the Best Picture winner unanimously.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really has held up incredibly well. It does not falter, this movie. It, it is 100% true, true to the characters, true to the writing, it is not cliche. You have no idea when you first see it. You have no idea where it's going. You know, mm-hmm. we know, we find out about Patsy's story. We find out, and that he goes through the decades and the years of, of mm. their lives and their relationships together. And that the mother has to survive the death of her daughter. This one person who she's had such a complicated relationship with for all these years. It's just, oh, God. Devastating. <laughs>
2: And if we Wait, if we that's... had been
1: around blogging in 1983 we probably would have been had a we would have been happy with it with the with the major winners and we would have also been happy I would have been happy that that Fanny and Alexander came away with four Oscars, and that the the right stuff came away with four Oscars. So it's, they spread the wealth really generously that year.
0: I think because it was such a weak year that the really good stuff ha- stood out more, it's, it mm. made it an easier choice in the end to pick the winners than it did even the nominees, because you know they didn't seem to be on their game with the nominees, but the winners, absolutely. I think that um, that the winners they picked this year are probably in the top ten best of all of Oscar history, you know, up there, they're up there. They're like, when all about Eve won kind
1: of thing, you know, it's. It feels weird for us to be giving our seal of approval to the Oscars. <laughs> Usually we, we, find so many things to complain about and we have done a lot of complaining this, this, this week, but we've also found a lot to be satisfied with. It's nice mm-hmm. for a change.
0: And we've even cried on the podcast <laughs> no, <we've, laughs> no. we've cried for the first time ever. I have to just add this one last thing, because I'm looking at IMDB page of Shirley MacLaine, and over to the right is Argo, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Hobbit. And I'm not going to try to keep beating up on Argo, God knows, but <laughs> just compare Argo to Terms of endear-
1: <laughs> just compare oh my God. Terms of endear-
2: If it, If it wasn't for us bitching about it every week, I would have forgotten about Argo already. <laughs> but i say that lovingly because i'm doing, i'm i'm not accusing either of you of doing it i'm doing it too it's just if it, if it wasn't a, a a stone in my shoe i would have forgotten about it
0: it's just it's so bland it's so unworthy of being called a winner and a best picture winner um, there
2: there wasn't there wasn't a single half of a moment in that film that even came close to some of the throwaway moments in terms of endearment like the uh, the scene where near the end where Aurora and Emma are talking and Aurora comes to the real, Aurora talks about how they've been fighting their whole lives and Emma doesn't think that they had been fighting their oh, whole lives and good. she suddenly realizes there's this huge perspective shift and Emma just tosses it off as well. It's because I was never good enough for you. And it, it's, this, it's this great moment. It's both funny and it's, both, and it's moving and it's real and it's human and there was nothing like that in Argo, nothing.
0: Oh, no, not even close I mean, sorry, Ben Affleck. I know you did the best job you could, but.
1: No. And Chris Terrio, you know, that's what we're talking about. Chris Terrio's screenplay to win an Oscar for that. For for lines like Argo fuck yourself <laughs> You know Are you kidding me That's the quotable line From Argo That's the thing That everyone quotes From Argo Competing something with that a, Something that a third grader Would say
0: Competing with a line like Be careful with that painting It's worth more than You'll ever make In your entire life
2: <laughs> I know And then Emma says Don't, <laughs> says, don't complain can, I had to grow up with this
0: She's like You could stand her For five minutes <laughs> <laughs>
1: says,
2: I had to grow up with it I just love so funny <laughs> Oh
0: I
1: can't think of any other movie really that's, that portrays a mother-daughter relationship so perfectly accurately well and with such love and such and such realism about really how difficult it can be and how how wonderful it can be.
0: I know and the and the vanity and the pride of Aurora. She's just such a magnificently drawn character and and how I mean I do sort of feel this way sometimes with Emma because Emma is so like Emma in this movie. Uh, not to not to even go there but um <laughs> you know emma's so de my emma's so down to earth and real and you know authentically herself and not vain and you know just mm-hmm. you know and, and I feel so much more like Aurora. I'm not like her, but...
2: None of the characters, including Shirley MacLaine, are perfect characters. And that's what makes them great. They're, they have their moments of greatness, but they're also horribly flawed. They do stupid things. They do mean things. Um, they're, they're not always kind to each other. But at the end, they're there for each other and they do what they can. And that's all, all you have.
0: You've been listening to episode 36 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com,
3: Ryan Adams, and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com.